Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Alex, shall we get started again? It was up to the thumbs up from Alex in the back there. Welcome back. Everybody's got a drink. We're heading for a finish at 9 o'clock. Record breaking. You'll all be looking at the inside of your lids by 9.30, I guarantee. If you can stay away. Not that that's got anything to do with our, our next... Our next when guest. does River start? When does River start? <laughs> so... Our next guest is uh, you know, an, an, old, uh, an old friend and colleague and who's um, written mm, acclaimed books in the past about the, the, the story of teenage, the, uh, the definitive history of punk rock, England's dreaming, and now he's applied his considerable talents to the extraordinary year of 1966. Would you welcome John Savage? <laughs> We, we were just talking, John. Uh, you, you were saying that the, the records from punk rock that you like nowadays are the fun ones. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, you listen, I, I, do, I can't listen to the Sex Pistols album all the way through anymore. Um, and I suppose it's because everybody was encouraged to take it so seriously at the time that the fun ones still sound fresh, like the boys and the undertones and the saints. And there's kind of... No significance, so you can just enjoy it. It's like surf music. Right. And, uh, you know, surf music's great. Nothing wrong with surf music. There are still traces of surf music in 1966. Yes. Um, So, why 1966? Uh, Do you want the long answer or the short answer? Long answer. Okay. Um, When I was working on the teenage book, the teenage uh, book was a history of youth culture between 1875 and 1945, And in order to research it properly, I had to uh, spend a long time inhabiting the First World War and the Second World War, both of which I found incredibly upsetting. Um, I was in the Imperial War Museum for a couple of days researching the First World War and its impact on youth, which, of course, was devastating. And I actually came out and puked into a bush straight away. I just walked out the door because it was so toxic. And again, when I was working in the Second World War, by the time I was writing about Anne Frank, whose diary is a 
classic teenage document, one of the first teenage documents from within, and writing about her death, I was literally crying at the keyboard. So I thought, okay, enough of that. Where do I want to be for the next, you know, two or three years, which I'm going to immerse myself in the book? And I just thought 1966, so it's one of those instinctive decisions. And then after you make the instinctive decision, you think, well, why did I do that? And in 1966, I was 12 turning 13. I was born within a couple of weeks of Mark Ellen, who isn't here, in September 53. Um, And 12 and 13 is one of the sort of peak times for your receptivity to pop music. So whenever any of you are born, if you actually think 12, 13 years after you're born, that's probably 14, maybe 14, 15. That's probably going to be the time of the music that really started to hit you. And I ask a lot of people this, of all generations, and, and, and it's pretty similar. It's 12, 13, 14, 15. So it was a peak time for me getting involved and in listening to pop music, and I did that in a suburb of West London called Ealing. And I'm an only child, and I was trying to please my parents, but at the same time, and do well in exams and all that stuff that you have to do when you're that age. But at the same time, I was listening to pirate radio, because, of course, being down south, you had it, and Radio Caroline South and listening to records like James Brown, I Got You, I Feel Good, and Along Comes Mary by the Association, and just daydreaming. And so when you thought about 1966, when you're looking back, you thought, you know, that's a time of great happiness and sunniness and so forth, and were you disappointed when you went back and looked at it? No, it's far better than I thought. Um, And that was good. I mean, it was a a time of sunniness and happiness which darkened in the autumn, Dave. Right. When I went to the big school, and that was not happy. Uh, I changed schools in summer 66. I won a scholarship to a public school. And then I went to the public school, and it was fucking awful. <laughs> and it coincided with a whole lot of terrible music, like Distant Drums and uh, Green Green Grass <laughs> of Home. So the music matched my mood. Um, but no, um, it was actually much better than I thought, and that was fascinating. I've always thought of it as a kind of touchstone, because 66 as a year has this fantastic compression um, in when you hear records like Good Vibrations. And, you know, when you're writing a book and you're writing about a record that's very familiar, you just play it and play it and play it and play it. I play, must have played about 100 times. And you sort of hear it in a new way. And to me, Good, Vi- Good Vibrations is such an extraordinary record on all sorts of levels. And um, it was a huge hit. Mm. And it's also almost an LP's worth of ideas... Yes and technology within a three-minute single. And that's what I liked about 66. It was the single, and it was still pop. It was still... Records like that still went to number one. Because you talk in the introduction to the book about how you went back and researched it, and you, you, know, you turned up loads of old music papers from various different countries and so forth. But you tried with the music to listen to it on vinyl as much as possible. Why? Uh, well, it's kind of, you know, obsessional. <laughs> but also, um, it is an important point, and um, I'm very glad that Roger Armstrong from Ace Records is here because he knows all about this. There's something very, you know, it, it's not being anal because a lot of 60s 45s were cut in a particular way to highlight an oral gimmick. There was always something that leapt out of the sound Um, in a way that it doesn't on CD because it's flattened and limited and compressed within a certain band. So on CD, for instance, you can actually hear the edits in good vibrations, whereas on vinyl, 
it's not so easy. Um, and so there is a point in listening to the records as they were originally released. I know it's a bit abstruse, but no. I, I'm also it also was something that sort of helped to feed the obsession because I bought loads of singles from that year. I've got about 500 singles from that year. Right. So we've, we've, got, <laughs> we've got a few visual uh, triggers here from uh, from this there year. So now this is this is actually 50 years ago, pretty much this week, isn't it? Yeah, on Sunday. So it's the end of uh, of 1965, and I, can people read that? No, I'll read it. Okay, so number one is turn, turn, turn. Uh, up from number four to number two. I've always wanted to do this. <laughs> the, the uppers and downs and hanging around us. Yeah. Up from number up from number four to number two is the Yardbirds with still I'm sad with the American B-side I'm a man killer. The Beatles at number three with uh, yesterday. Um, Len Barry boo with one two three. <laughs> Rolling Stones, Get Off My Cloud, five. Lies and Nicobolas, uh, six. Let's Hang On by the Four Seasons, seven. I Hear a Symphony Supremes. Pied Piper, The Changing Times. That was covered by, um, oh God, Crispian St. Peter's, thank you. And was also cited in the very famous article about the two song killers by Robert Moser in Time magazine, which is a classic teenage murder, um, murder case in 66. <laughs> Ten, let, it be, let, be, let Me Be by the Turtles. Do you want to take over, Dave, or is that enough? Uh, Taste of Honey by Herb, Herb Albert, which is still heard on the radio all the time, isn't it? Um, what else we got? We got Dave Clark 5, not one of their classics, but uh, you got New Beats, uh, you got Rescue Me, Fontella Bast, you got The Animals in My Life. I mean, if you go all the way down, and right at the bottom, number 30, making its debut, I Fought the Law by the Bobby Fuller 4. <laughs> oh no, and number 25, The Revolution Kind by Sonny. So, <laughs> but it, it's still amazing how many of those would still be familiar now, isn't yes. it? Yes. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, there's the animals, it's my life, debut, you didn't have to be so nice, loving spoonful, all rock classics, really. And just, that's just a standard week towards the end of 1965, so that's 50 years ago this week, and you can go, free to go and look at the Music Week chart and see how it compares. And actually, that's from a magazine called KRLA Beat, which is, they've got the complete issues online for free, if you actually punch it into Google. Oh, really? Yeah, you can have a look. Oh, okay. So, I, I picked a few things. Um, I, I'm not sure if Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction is at the end of 1965 or in 66, but it's a record I always associate with the time. And one of the points you're making in this book is that people felt very insecure about the state of the world and nuclear war and so yeah. forth. Well, I was trying to think back about what gave the 60s its drive. And obviously there are economic factors and obviously there's the fact that young people have jobs and there's still uh, youth, youth employment. There was no tuition fees. Um, and um, the Beatles had drawn in, the success of the Beatles had drawn an enormous amount of money to the entertainment industry and the youth culture in general. But there's something else that give it, gives it its drive. And in the first chapter, I talk about a record by The Uglies, who were fronted by a man called Steve Gibbons, um, who you may know of. Um, and they, he, he, they had a record called A Quiet Explosion, which is a B-side of a single released in January. And it was about the nuclear bomb falling. And it just reminded me of how the big fear of the time, there's always a big fear of the time, now it's climate change, terrorism, surveillance. Then it was the nuclear bomb. I don't know whether any of you remember, but um, it certainly was. In January 66, a man called Peter Watkins was trying to get his film shown 
um, this film called The War Game, which was commissioned by the BBC and banned. Um, and he was trying to get into cinemas for limited release and having incredible battles going right up to the Home Office. Um, and um, what the war game showed was a fictionalised documentary of a one-megaton H-bomb falling on a small uh, British town. And I saw I don't know if people in the audience have seen it, I saw it when I was 15, and it actually, a couple of years later, three years later in 69, and it totally changed my life, because I remember walking out of seeing that, I was horrified, I had nightmares for months, um, and I just thought, everything I've been taught is wrong. Every single thing. It had that, that much of an effect. And I do think that, the, that one of the reasons you have this you know, rocket-powered youth culture in the 60s is because of that fear. And Steve Gibbons actually said, you know, I thought I was going to die before I was 25. So, and, and so you have this, this... What happens in 65 with Dear Old Barry? And that is, is an incredible song. It's sort of kitsch. He just died this week, didn't he? I know, poor thing. Oh, very sorry. Okay. Cheers, Barry. I think he's dead already. Isn't Barry already dead? Yeah, well, no. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> sorry, Barry. Sorry, Pierre. Uh, but that's a sort of commercialisation. But in a way, like a lot of um, like a lot of sort of bandwagon jumping hits, it's also great. Yeah. Um, and. It's the moment in '65 when pop and protest, come, uh, pop and folk, come together, and that's a very interesting moment because previously they'd been separate, and you know you have obviously Dylan and Donovan, but you have this climate of people protesting and get things, and it's a bit kitsch and it's a bit very teenage, but it's still. It sets up the idea that you can write so- pop songs that are critical of what's going on. In the I world. can remember in very pompous fashion saying to my father, "You ought to listen to this song. It's about something." You know what I mean? As if, <laughs> as if he wasn't familiar with the concept at all. Because <laughs> pop music had just been how much is the doggy in the window or what a you know, gobbledygook. <laughs> what a, th- this picture. Tell us about the, the, you know, the, this taking an interesting place with some interesting people. I, I would just say on the last... You, Sorry. Uh, even Destruction sort of record, you'd have clergymen on the BBC talking about it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> There's a pro, used to be a programme called Quarter to Ten, I think, where they used to do that, that I, I remember that somebody thing. doing that about help, and this very serious clergyman <laughs> talking yes. about help. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is not what he wanted to hear, let's face it. Um, OK, so these guys. Peter Asher... Um, oh, Peter Barry, and Gordon as I both. Oh, Peter and Gordon. Um, uh, a Lady Godiva in the charts probably when that was taken. Uh, Barry Miles, who's a friend of mine and a wonderful man and probably the historian of that period and a major figure in the British counterculture um, and a very generous man. And John Dunbar, who I've never met, but I've seen at a party, uh, talking to Lee Bowery. Looking remarkably, uh, <laughs> like, looking remarkably like Tom Hibbert in that picture. Well, yeah. Um, so where are they and what are they, what are they it doing? It looks as though they're in outside Indica. They oh. are in Mason's Yard. And Indica was a bookshop and a, and a gallery set up by Miles. And also Paul McCartney was heavily involved. And this was Paul McCartney's um, avant-garde phase. Um, so this is 1966 is when he's, he's doing all this. Yeah, we well, see the Beatles had... Um, in, at the beginning of... The Beatles were still the biggest pop group. They were the centre of the whole youth culture at that time. It's hard for us to remember now. The biggest pop group is... What, one Direction, but they don't have the same... No, no, don't be horrible, Dave. They don't have the same... 
Uh, they don't have the same... Imp- you know, I think I can fairly be horrible. No, actually, you can. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but it was like, imagine One Direction doing Tomorrow Never Knows. Seriously. So this was the period when Paul McCartney was going weird and John Lennon was going weird because they had the time. The early, early 66 was... They were due to shoot their first film and it fell through at the last minute. So suddenly they had three months off. And what did they do? What would a, a big pop, huge, biggest pop star in the world do with three months off in early 66? They'd take drugs and get weird, wouldn't they? And so that's what happened. And, of course, out of all this, Ferment comes Revolver and Paperback Writer, which is a wonderful record, still one of my favourite Beatles songs. Not Hey Jude, not any of those McCartney songs from Let It Be, thank you very much. Um, and, um, and obviously Tomorrow Never Knows. And also... Other things that in March, when the Beatles started to um, reappear in public, they did two very stupid things in retrospect. Number one, they posed for the butcher photo, which we may have. And the other thing is Lennon gave the interview to Maureen Cleave about we're more popular than Jesus, both of which would be like a ticking time bomb later on in the year. Yes, because it took a long time for that we're more popular than Jesus story to come out, didn't it? It was published with nobody noticed it at all. Well, I do write about both the butcher cover because, and, the, and the Jesus comment on the American tour because it's the moment when, and in a more general sense, the pop stars, pop stars suddenly rebel. So the pop press in early 66 are full of stories about how surly the Who are and taking the two, Who to task about taking drugs. And then Rave complains about Brian Jones being unavailable. Where is he? Can he come out of his pleasure dome? We want him. And all this kind of stuff. And groups split up and Dylan, you know, Dylan has his May tour and annoys half the audience. And suddenly you've got major pop stars annoying everybody. Um, And obviously the Rolling Stones do it with their proposed album cover, uh, Can You Please Walk on the Water, which is the first version of Aftermath. And then later on in the year with the drag pictures and drag video for Have You Seen Your Mother Baby? which is a huge flop. Um, and so they were all getting... They were coming to the limit, and this is an important point about the year, pop was becoming something else. And either you were going to get a new generation of pop groups, and in '66 you had the Walker Brothers, who were for slightly younger female fans who made great records, or you had the Trogs, um, who I love, or Dave D. Dozy Beacon, Mick and Titch, who I was just young enough to really like. Thank you. Hold tight. Great record. Uh, especially the fuzz break. Um, <laughs> um, and their performance on Cracker Jack was a killer, yeah. <laughs> you make a very good point about, about the Rolling Stones around about this time. and Aftermath, which is probably my favourite Rolling Stones record, that, that it, you say it's about being bored. Yeah, well, uh, my favourite song on Aftermath is Don't You Bother Me, where he says, where he talks about, you know, the lines around my eyes are protected by copyright law, which is probably one of <laughs> Jagger's best lyrics ever. Yeah. Um, and you suddenly, you've got this in, big interview with Maureen Cleave in March 66, where he just talks about being really bored, about going to all these nightclubs and having a pop star life, and it's just empty for him. And this is something really interesting, that instead of pretending everything's wonderful and being pleased with everything, everybody is pissed off. Yeah. Um, and this is the start of something new, a new kind of attitude, which, which would later be called the counterculture, that there was something more. There must be more than this. And that's what Lennon, in fact, said to Maureen Cleave. Because this, yeah. this had happened very fast, hadn't it? Because these groups had been unheard of three years earlier. 
and you know they come on the scene, made their name, become world famous, and become and got bored with it that quickly. Well, it's hardly surprising when you look at their record release schedules and their gig schedules. I actually saw a gig schedule for the Yardbirds in, in one of the books, and they're playing every night, sometimes two dates. You know, three hundred and forty days a year. No wonder they got fed up. Yeah, and they're releasing. They have this insane schedule of three or four singles a year and two albums a year and, you know, going to America and touring. Oh, there they are. Look at them. Um, I actually have this record and it just looks really creepy. It's got the most horrible grey wash, which you can sort of see, um, and it's got this weird kind of texture thing. And you just look at it and you think, what, were, what was everybody thinking of? Because <laughs> it was uh, Robert Whittaker, wasn't it? It was, it was Robert Whittaker. It was trying to do interesting things with them, is that right? Yes. I went down to visit him before he died. He died uh, last year, I think last year or maybe the year before. And I went down to visit him. And he was very nice. And he came up with all this complicated ex- explanation about what this is going to be. Um, which I write about in the book and I can't remember. Because that is just... <laughs> and you look at the back... And he, he's not happy. Um, and they're all obviously stoned. That's the other thing. They've got, all got slit eyes. Um, and you just think, what were they thinking of? They, um, and it was actually put out, wasn't it? Yeah, Whitaker went to a doll, a doll factory in, in Chiswick in Barley Mow Passage and got a whole lot of doll parts, a bit like Hans Belmer, and then got the meat. And there's sort of weird details, like there are eyes put in the meat... Um, and I think George was a vegetarian by then, so he wasn't very happy. Um, and, you know, they got the white lab coats, and he's the one that's into it. He actually said shortly after when there was a huge furore, um, I always liked Lennon, he was always my favourite Beatle because he was the naughty one. And he, he said, uh, yeah, it's just about as relevant as Vietnam. Fair enough. And... <laughs> So what happened, I mean, the story is very familiar, but I actually got memos, a friend of mine in Los Angeles called Jeffrey Gold sent me some memos from Capital from the period, and there's this incredibly detailed memo from Capital over two pages, how um, so-and-so, the product manager for the area, took 50,000 T2653 sleeves to Scranton, PA, to the town dump, found a swampy bit, inserted them in there, and then put a whole load of garbage on top. It was completely insane. Um, And so Capital had to junk 70,000 sleeves at a cost of $200,000, which in 66 was a lot of money. And that was the first crack in the Beatles' decision. But it was amazing that it had got so far before it was stopped. Well, this is part of the whole period. Nobody really understood. Adults and record companies and the mainstream media and the authorities didn't really understand what was going on. It's happening right under their nose. And this is a part of it, really, that suddenly somebody wakes up and thinks that wasn't, maybe wasn't such a good idea. This is of no great significance other than the fact that you put it together with Welsh hymn numbers. That's correct, yes. I was, bo- I was bored one Sunday. It was raining. <laughs> It was horizontal rain. This, there they are, our, our heroes. This is yeah, our heroes, and the, uh, my favourite magazine of the time. If you could find yeah. it, was it your favourite? Yes, I also liked Disc. That was my favourite. Disc and Music Echo because it had Penny Valentine and Derek Taylor. But, so Rave was, you know, a nice colour magazine. Long with, you know, when those things were, were quite rare. And it was obviously a visual feast as compared to the record mirror or whatever. Or the enemy. And so 
what was important at the t- it just it was a good uh, it was a good focus for for the for the interest in fashion at the time which is yes and also very it a- important it was aimed at girls and boys yes so yeah. that was, so you got ads for perfume and cosmetics as well as guitars and stuff like that so was it do you think it's the high point pop fashion um i if you really ask me i'd say yes i think that Dylan in particular on the 66 tour just looks amazing in every single picture. Um, I would love to have a wardrobe of those clothes, but I'm a bit too old. So why does it look so good, that Um, look? Why does it look so good? Because it's still mod, but it's weird. It's just fuzzy at the edges, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a bit psychedelic. You've got, you know, you've got lots of polka dots and stuff going on, which is great. So you've got a bit of op art and you've got a bit of the drug culture. It's still smart. It's still pointy boots. It's still skinny, skinny... um, Trousers. Yeah, the flares hasn't, haven't arrived, have And they? the hair is looking really good. Yeah, yeah. The hair is perfect. Um, and Dylan's hair is a thing of wonder. In, in. <laughs> now, this is slightly less stylish. No, he's an arsehole. Um, he's like... the one on, on the cover of the Date Book magazine that published um, John Lennon's We're More Popular Than Jesus comment. He's on saying, these long-haired groups are completely disgusting. How many hits do we have, Len? <laughs> Just the one Two. was it? No, 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 it was Like was a Baby t- as well, wasn't there? Oh, right, Like a Baby. Like a Baby. Yes, good grief. So there was also, at the same time as people were, were wigging out, you also had this mainstream pop music, uh, both in America and all these people who are actually now forgotten. It's fascinating. We could go back to the chart and look at people like the Vogues or Gary Lewis and the Playboy, about whom history does not relate. No, but they, no. were all, they were in the charts. And the same in the UK... And this is what I keep on saying, and, and you know this, and a lot of people who are around there know this, but the 60s experience of pop music was not like Austin Powers, where you're <laughs> driving down Carnaby Street in an E-type with 60s classics from the triple CD banging out. It was, you know, it was, um, it was fitting through Top of the Pops or two-way family favourites and having to endure five absolutely awful records in a row before you got to the Stones or the Yardbirds or whoever, or Dylan. And the fact you had to sit through all these records and, and when you're young at that age, they just seem to go on forever. The one that drove me mad was The Carnival Is Over. <laughs> and I still hear that and I just go straight back to rainy Sunday afternoons, pick of the pops, followed by... Sing, sing something, something Simple. simple. With the Cliff Adams Singers. And then you knew that Monday was coming like an express yes, train. There's nothing you could do about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a kind of black and white world, wasn't it? You know, the, 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 at the time, you know, it was not it was not colourful and, and it didn't feel like the youth had taken over, did it? When you walked down your local high street. Well, of course, being a horrible Londoner, it did. Oh right. Um, oh, okay. And I make no bones about this. I mean, I'm very glad to. Even in Ealing, which is a suburb, Ealing was quite a pop. Um, centre obviously there's the Ealing Club there and the place where I used to buy records was a instrument and um, electronic shop called Squires where, where Dusty Springfield had worked so, and also there was a local mod group called the Eyes oh right and the Eyes wore rugby and they did sort of bad who and they were absolutely fantastic and they had a song called My Degeneration um, and uh, they play. They had another song called "When the Night Falls," and they did sort of who pop art explosions very badly. So they were absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and they all wore rugby, striped rugby shirts with a big eye in the middle. And they publicised themselves in Ealing, Ealing Broadway tube station. I used to walk past these huge posters and think, "Wow, 
I was only 12. I still like the Trogs. <laughs> <laughs> you, you write quite a lot about Norma Taniga. Well, you Taniga. see, um, the book is, of course, because I was alive at the time. Um, I wasn't in the teenage book, which ended in 1945. Thank you very much. And I was alive in 1966. And so there's obviously an element of biography in there. But it's also disguised autobiography, because I don't approve of direct autobiography. I think it's a bit trite. Um, and um, and one of the wonders of it, one of the great privileges of it, really, is that I was able to go back. It's very weird. When you hear records when you're young and you just like them and you get obsessed with them, and then you go back and you look into them a bit and you think, well, maybe that's why I liked it. And you start to realise, and, and why, why did I respond to this record, which I really did, this is my favourite. For about three months I was obsessed with Substitute, then I was obsessed with this one. And Before you go any further, Mary. has anybody even never heard this record? Oh, walking fantastic. My... Is Terry there? Walk... Norma Taniga on YouTube, Walking My Cat Named Dog, yes? Are we going to play it? Oh, brilliant. Well, if you can do it. Oh, no, she's on, she's on a TV show playing it with the guitar. It's fantastic. She's wearing Kenneth J. Lane earrings. Take your time, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, Terry. Anyway, I'll keep on talk? rabbiting. Yeah, I, was obs- on. I was obsessed with this record, which Radio Caroline bashed the hell out of. It wasn't a big UK hit. Um, and um, it suddenly struck me that it was a new kind of female record. Um, and that because it was different to the women singers in the UK. I mean, Dusty Springfield, one of the, again, one of the pleasures of the book is actually really listening to Dusty Springfield, who I think is a true artist and released many wonderful records in 66, in particular Little by Little, which I love, and obviously you don't have to say you love me. Um, And she was uh, quite unusual, Dusty Springfield, because she had active control in her music, and that actually... She was a a groundbreaker, um, although she didn't see herself as such. And at that time, it was just pre the second wave of feminism... Um, and I do talk about you know, the advances in women's rights. And there was a very important manifesto in '66 called um, A Kind of Memo, Sex and Caste. And the people who wrote it, Mary King and Casey Hayden, said they didn't use the word, in retrospect, that we didn't use the word feminist because the word still wasn't in general use. It was only the next year that it started to come in. So you're just at this moment. I love that record. I love that record. So, I mean, so, one thing I was going to ask you, was anybody openly gay in pop music in 1966? No. Not I mean, in fact, there's an interesting story, because Norma Taniga became a pop star, uh, came over to the UK, went to Thank You Lucky Stars to appear, met Dusty and started a relationship with her. Right. Later on in 66. Um, and the great thing about that record is being about a young woman walking around the city and feeling free. It's a feeling groovy record, which is so important. And you get that sense of freedom. And I asked her about that. And I said, well, weren't you scared walking around New York as a woman? She said, no. I had just as much right to be there as anybody else. Good attitude. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, no. I mean, of course, and when you think about it... Um, I've talked about this a lot with the V&A. I'm working with them on a show for next year called Records, Rebels and Revolutionaries about the late 60s. 
the gay rights movement in the, in the States was called the homophile movement, and it was still really, really underground. Um, and in fact, obviously, the most important um, minorities marginalised civil rights movement was the civil rights movement, yes. which was absolutely huge and informed the emergent feminist, feminist movement, movement and, yeah. and the gay movement as well. Yeah. There are lots of documents that say, you know, look at the um, black Americans getting it together for themselves. Let's do it for us. So 1966 is oh, the year yeah. of Eight Miles High by Lay Birds. Trouble. <laughs> Trouble. OK, he's on Twitter, by the way, and he's brilliant. <laughs> he answers every question. Oh, really? <laughs> so... <laughs> So <laughs> this is a key record in your, in your book. Well, I don't know about any of you, but I love the birds. And I did at the time. I was transfixed by Michael Clark's hair. I'm afraid it was that. And, and, and Jim McGuinn's glasses. Um, and I was transfixed by, transfixed by them in 65 with, with Mr. Tambourine Man. And, of course, they had a big hit in the UK with All I Really Want to Do, which they didn't in the US. Um, Eight Miles High, of course, is an acid record. It's a record about LSD disguised as talking about a trip to London. They all said, oh, no, it's not a drug song. Of course it's a drug song. Um, And um, it's the one that basically killed their career because it went to number 14, and then that was it. You know, previously they'd had number ones. Um, I think it's a fantastic record. I don't use it to talk about LSD. I talk about another record which was released at the same time, by an obscure group called the, called the Dovers, and it's called The Third Eye. And why I used it is actually the Birds record is too good. Um, they were very obviously very good musicians by this time, and obviously very skilled communicators, whereas the Dovers record, you get a real raw sense of how t- American teens felt after they'd taken LSD. It's quite brutal, it's very raw and very threatening. And so you have this gloss in 67, that everything's lovely and groovy when you take acid. But it wasn't. I don't know whether anybody in this room has taken LSD. Don't worry, the police aren't here. But it's not all peaceful and groovy. It's actually quite scary at various points. And so um, that's why I chose the Dover's record, but I also wrote quite a lot about the Bird's record. And it's very interesting. Derek Taylor claimed that... Um, and this is one of the first instances of the authorities realising what's going on underneath their nose... And actually, there was a famous Top 40 uh, radio report called the Bill Drake Report. It's quite a familiar story that actually cited this and Bob Dylan's Rainy Day Women, numbers 12 and 35, as drug songs. And Derek Taylor, who, who was the PR par excellence and a, a fantastic myth spinner, um, a wonderful man, um, said that you know the radio band had killed the Birds record, but actually it didn't. Um, it didn't kill the Dylan record, which went to number two. And what happened? The birds were too difficult. Um, David Crosby had obviously insulted everybody at CBS. And CBS went with Paul Revere and the Raiders. And Kicks went to number four. <laughs> there he is. That's uh, your favourite look. Yeah, look at that suit. <laughs> um, I'm completely obsessed with the acoustic shows on the 66 tour. I know everybody goes on about the... Um, Electric shows, and they are wonderful, and they were the ones that caused the fuss. But the acoustic shows, every single one is just wonderful. And this is bootleg, um, which you can actually get off eBay quite cheaply. Um, I got mine for about 10 quid. And it's two CDs from Bristol in um, 10th of May, 1966. And the version of Desolation Row is the best I've ever heard. 
That's an it, ad. It's, it's rock and roll. It's, it's two minutes faster than every other version I've heard. He's really rattling through it. It's obviously... This was this dose wrong. This always strikes me as a as a key record of the time. That this was the most the best record to carry under your arm if you to get <laughs> into the school playground in 1966. Well, we were discussing it before, and and that's the Stones I like. I like the Stones that made those hits one after the other, um, and. I mean, that, that had, you know, that was a Gerald Schatzberg cover. Uh, that was taken the same day as the drag cover. Um, they're all wearing fantastic clothes. Um, you know, look at Mick's jacket and Brian's suit. You can, see the, uh, you can see the cast on his wrist where he's tried to hit Anita Pallenberg and missed. Um, little shit. And um, sorry, Brian, but he's dead now, isn't he? And Keith's wearing polka dot and a military jacket. I mean, it's pretty definitive. And there they are with a fisheye lens somewhere in, the middle of, somewhere in the middle of New York. And inside, as you obviously, as you remember, you've got five pages of pictures. Picks. And Garib Mankiewicz pictures of them. And 14 tracks. Come on, you know, it's just one hit after but you, another. You, you point out that they made some very strange records in 1966, didn't they? The Stones. Stones, yes. Well, have you seen your? Don't you think? Have you seen your mother baby strange? It I is. Do. It's completely weird, and um, they weren't formula at all, were they? They weren't trying to do anything that they'd done no. before. No, I mean, have you seen? You know, sometimes in pop music groups, I sort of think of "Have You Seen Your Mother Baby" rather like being the, the Stone Roses' "One Love." It's at the moment when you'll think you're abs- at the absolute peak, you're the biggest group, and you've got to make a statement. And as soon as you're in that position, it's going to turn out really badly. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, and it, the Beatles just sidestepped it with all you need is love. You know, right. it, nearly, it nearly was that. It's easy, you know, I don't, I don't like all you need Right, love. right. Sorry, so it's, that, it's, it's a dangerous moment. It's there. a dangerous moment, and the Stones hit it. And, you know, they, they have two videos. They had endless press, and the record went to number eight. And then, of course, there were music press moratoria. <laughs> the Stone Slip disc. Over? Is it all over? It's probably on the news. <laughs> so this, you write quite a lot about, uh, you know, this record and, and Vietnam and its yes. influence on what was going on. Well, what I wanted to do with the book, obviously, is to reflect all the times and not just to, you know, go with the groovy bits, um, although there are plenty of them. And I wanted to set up in the book a dialectic, a clash between um, this forward-looking, vibrant pop culture and, you know, governments, adults, the forces of reaction. And obviously the biggest dissolving agent in American society and the biggest worry for young Americans in '66 was the Vietnam War, which was undeclared. Actually reading, I read a lot about the history of the Vietnam War, most of which I didn't use, but it was never formally declared. Johnson didn't, President Johnson did not go through due process. And so it was a war by stealth. And in March 66, um, this record, The Ballad of the Green Beret, n- not the LP, the single, was number one for six weeks, um, obviously driving American teenagers mad. But more importantly, that was probably the high spot of public support for Vietnam because as the war went on, President, President Johnson's rating slipped. And also, as more and more people people went over. 1966 was the year, you know, the biggest increase in draftees to Vietnam in the whole of the 60s. And suddenly it was really serious and suddenly it wasn't going well and suddenly Americans were having doubts and also more and more people were protesting. So there was really something to protest about. And this is in a way where 
American pop culture starts to diverge from British pop culture and starts to take the lead because it really has got something to, to kick against. Right. So everything that was happening in society was being reflected in the pop charts That's, in one way or another. Well, what I wanted to say in the book, which is not necessarily popular amongst a lot of people, was that pop music was indivisible from life. It wasn't some separate thing. It was life itself. And everything, almost everything that went on in that year, because by that point, pop music was a mass art form of some considerable seriousness and depth, and um, everything was reflected in it. So why (laughs) is that, which was, you know, one of the most memorable moments of 1966, England winning the World Cup, didn't have anything to do with pop music at all. Pop music had nothing to do with it. Is that true? Is that what you, well, I'm glad to hear you say it, Dave. Um, well, all I can say is look at the haircuts, OK? <laughs> I mean, it's very simple. When I was young, growing up in West London, the nearest football team was Brentford. So, you know, what am I going to do? When I see people... When I look at football and see people running around on a muddy pitch in bad clothes with bad haircuts, reminding me of what it's like to play sport at school on a wet afternoon in November or I look at Ready, Steady, Go and see the kinks what am I going to go for? I'm going to go for the kinks because they've got fantastic clothes, they've got fantastic hair and they're making a fantastic record and I'm still of the generation that sport and music were separate, thank you very much Yes. so, and the weirdos and the arties and went for music and the um, you know, the norms went for sport <laughs> and I do not approve of the mix. I'm sorry, I know it's heretical, but I hate it. And okay? never the twain shall meet. And never the twain shall meet. So I, I, that gets one line in the book. <laughs> but there are many other lines in the book, and it's an extraordinary read. And thanks very much indeed for coming along and talking about it. John, I think we may have some coffees out there if, uh, if anybody would like to buy one and get it, get it signed by John. Would you please thank John Savage? <laughs> I think we also have an ACD that uh, accompanies the uh, the uh, the book, and uh, and these postcards have been pointed out to me, which you, you should have one in your seat, are actually will be accepted by the Royal Mail. You can you know, there are genuine postcards, so you can also, send it to your friend. Uh, and also, there should be a disc- to get commercial. There should be a discount code um, of it on on the seats in some of the postcards. I hope there is if you want to buy the book. Thanks very much Thank again. You. Cheers. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. 